Recovery Elevator, episode 242. Everybody would dress up, but really it was always about the booze. But you can kind of like, I always use this phrase, I dressed it up, because I dressed it up. The drinks were fancy. You know, the thing is, the hangover was the same. But, you know, maybe the drinks were, you know, served in a special way or, you know, I kind of use that to rationalize and also to normalize. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's episode, we've got Kelly. She's 54 years old. She took her last drink on October 27th, 2017, and she's from northern New Jersey. In this path of recovery, there's a false assumption that one must pick a path of 12-step recovery or alternative methods. And Kelly talks about how she has blended AA and Annie Grace. It's a great interview. I know you guys are going to love it. This upcoming January 20th to 31st, 2020, Recovery Elevator is putting on an alcohol-free trip to Thailand and Cambodia. And here are some reasons why the mind is probably telling you that you can't or shouldn't go. It's on the other side of the world. It isn't cheap. Regarding my sobriety, I'm in a good spot. I got this. I don't speak Thai or Khmer, Paul. I don't know anyone else who's going. I don't know if I can stay sober before the trip. I hear you. Those are all valid, but be conscious of where those thoughts are coming from. Now, here are some reasons why I think you should go. It's going to take new experiences, people, places, and things to create your new life that you're envisioning. Traveling the world with others who no longer wish to drink alcohol is a magical experience. Listen to the body, heart, and soul. It wants you to go. Thai food, elephants, bike rides through the Southeast Asia countryside, anger what? The trip's going to be awesome. You'll build that alcohol-free community the heart has been yearning for all along. Go to recoveryelevator.com for the full itinerary and details. Okay, let's get started. On my calendar, I schedule out the week before when I'm going to record the episodes. And here we are, Tuesday morning, August 27th, my calendar said, from 9 a.m. to 10.30 a.m., I'm going to be recording RE Paul 242. Well, I woke up around 3 a.m. this morning, filled with chemicals of stress, craving for the old Paul, and I said, no, there's not a chance I'm going to be recording this episode this morning. And, and similar to emails that I get from interviewees, sometimes I get an email the day before I have an interview scheduled the next day, and they'll say, hey, Paul, I'm not feeling good. Um, can we reschedule the interview? I'd like to do the interview later when I have more sobriety time or when I'm in a better state of mind. My response to them is, hey, This is the perfect time to do the interview because we can cover what's going on in your life at the moment and and pushing things off to a later date when we might be feeling better. You know what? Let's just go ahead and do it. So I almost had to internally send the email to myself. And when I got to work, I said, no, Paul, um, we need to honor what we tell the interviewees and go ahead and record this podcast episode. So despite me telling myself I'm going to record this episode, I'm feeling better. I'm going to record it right now when I'm kind of feeling like shit. 
Yes, I'm having a rough day, and here's what I think is going on. And the reason why I say I think is going on is I don't want to label this because the mind can incorrectly label things. In fact, it's not good at correctly labeling things. We have 60 to 70,000 thoughts per day, and most of them are wrong. But here's my take on what's going on. So today is August 27th. Tomorrow, I fly to Costa Rica for three weeks. Now, you might be saying, dude, Paul, you're, you're going to Costa Rica for three weeks? Like, what could possibly go wrong? What are you stressing about? Well, okay. So I've had this idea to do a retreat center, an in-person wellness retreat center um, where we reconnect. The opposite of addiction is connection. And this is an idea that I've had in my brain for a couple years now. And when an idea that I have has, has, has so much energy and momentum behind it, watch out, it usually happens. And so I have made decisions in the past. I've sold three businesses in, this, in the past six months to create space for this idea concept, with right, which right now is only an idea and a concept, but it's, it's building energetic atomic weight as we speak. And the body yesterday got on board with this plan, but it wasn't fully on board. And so you've heard me say, get outside your comfort zone, but right now I'm fully outside my comfort zone. It doesn't make sense what I'm doing. I love Montana. I've got fantastic friends here. I've got an amazing alcohol-free community. Uh, I just bought a house last year. Me and my dog, Ben, we do hikes, trails all the time. I'm an incredible ice hockey team called the Empty Netters, and I think we're going to win the championship this year. So I'm moving, okay? And my body is saying, wait a second. Why are we doing this? We did this before 15 years ago when we moved to Spain and well, we're podcasting about it still. It didn't go well. Well, actually it went perfectly well. I had to become addicted to alcohol for me to learn the lessons, etc. And again, I wouldn't be behind this mic, Rafone, if I didn't go to Spain. So I'm guessing the message that I'll be talking about 15 years from now will largely piggyback off this next experience. So that's what it is. I'm guessing the body is creating chemicals saying, whoa, Paul, we are way outside of our comfort zone. Let's pull it back. And what I'm doing, I'm just letting the chemicals come. I'm going about my day. I'm recognizing them. I'm showering these uncomfortable feelings with awareness. That's all we need to do in this. So we all have bad days or we all have rough days, shall we say. And my life is infinitely better without the booze, but I don't want to paint an incorrect picture that it's all Instagram sunsets with my standard poodle, Ben. I have rough days too. We all do. In fact, you need the bad days to define the good days. I know it's kind of a weird concept. So here's a good thing though. Even though these last couple days were uncomfortable and I don't want to already predict the future and say tomorrow's going to be uncomfortable as well. Um, it may be these feelings of stress could dissipate after the episode. I don't know. I want to give my body permission to feel these feelings. And also, I want to give my body permission to allow them to go. So I don't want to double down on this. But a cool thing is that alcohol, it hasn't even popped up in the equation. It hasn't been like, man, I need a drink. That actually hasn't happened yet. So major progress when we zoom out. In fact, I'm doing yoga at noon, right? Hey, I'm having a rough day. I'm going to go to yoga awesome stuff is happening. But a little bit about this retreat center. And guys, email me at info at recoveryelevator.com if this is something you'd be interested in attending. Sometimes I get way ahead of myself and I create supply before there's even demand. But I have a feeling 
that this will strike home with a lot of listeners right now. So the opposite of addiction is connection, like I mentioned earlier. What I want to do is find an area, um, possibly on the beach. I would love to do it in Montana, but it's frigid up here. And that kind of hampers the plan I have about connecting with the earth and in in gardens and things like that. So I want to find an area most likely on the beach that has a center, a lodge with a bunch of bungalows, smaller cabins, etc., surrounding it. And I want to explore the infinite creative ways to connect, connect the heart and soul, connect with other human beings, connect with nature, just connect in general and fully give the authentic self permission to speak. And this could be fun. Like I said, there are infinite ways to do this. And I feel creativity is the best way to do this. So let me know if you'd be interested in attending something like this. You'd be able to book a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month. Who knows? The details aren't hammered out yet. And I'm not going to find it in the next three weeks. I'm giving myself time to relax. Just finished a big retreat. Just had a book. And I'm thinking this is going to happen the next year to two years. And if it's supposed to happen and I'm in the right position or the right geographical location, it should find me. Because after all, what you're seeking is also seeking you. Okay, let's get started again. A couple weeks ago, a great question was asked at the Recovery Elevator Retreat, which was, when do you know it's a good time after quitting alcohol to start tackling other substances behaviors, thought patterns, etc. on this journey. For example, when I quit drinking, I also wanted to load up the plate and quit caffeine, ditch the antidepressants, stop taking ADHD meds, sugar, etc. So really none of that happened after I quit drinking alcohol. In fact, I added nicotine to the plate and then I had to quit that. And then right around year three and a half, year four is when I started exploring leaving antidepressants, ADD meds, etc. So I absolutely love this question and good on you for having the courage to A, quit drinking alcohol and then B, keep uncovering stones in your life and improving your life situation. All of these things take courage. So first off, my advice on this is to go slow and be patient. There is some strategy to this. On paper, it sounds like a great idea to quit alcohol, cigarettes, coffee, sugar, all at once, and maybe shopping too. And that can get ugly. In fact, if we overload the plate, the consequences can be dire. So please go slow with this and be kind to yourself. So when this question was asked at the retreat, I think it was Trisha, who's the host of the Recovery Happy Hour, I think she answered with basically saying, you'll know. Your body will let you know when it's time to tackle the next substance. And we initially think it's all substances. We look externally, but we can also go internal. Your body will know when it's time to quit whatever's holding you back. And I say internal, it could be a thought pattern. It could be a limiting belief. So it might not be something external like donuts, ice cream, sugar, gambling, sex, etc. And this mirrored my experience as well. My body let me know when it was time to start addressing the next issues. Some more advice on this. If you've quit drinking and your body gives you indication that it's time to tackle another substance to leave behind, wait another couple weeks or another month just to get another month away from alcohol under your belt. And then also ask yourself this question. Are you doing it because drinking wasn't a panacea fix-all solution? Are you saying, hmm, life didn't quite change or improve the way I thought it was going to be, so it's got to be the caffeine, or it's got to be my sugar intake, or 
I'm not following the keto diet to perfection or I'm not running, etc. So be careful with this stuff that we're not doubling down, that we're not placing internal wholeness on a future date that says when this happens, then I'll be happy because right then the trap's already been set. So when we do start to tackle these next things that we feel are holding us back, it has to be done with unequivocal compassion. You need to tell yourself, I love myself so much that I'm going to explore a week without Netflix or a week without cookies, etc. Another thing I want to mention is don't go looking for things to quit. If you've recently punted alcohol away from your life and you're saying, look at me, bring it on, what's next? And you go around looking for something, well, you're going to reinforce that something is missing or something is wrong. So there's no need to go out there and look for something that you need to quit. Does that make sense? You guys dig? You follow me with that? This is an important mindset to adhere to. So go slow again with this. There's the go slow component again. So when the time is right, your body, your internal and external environments will cue you on where to go next. We might be saying we need to quit caffeine or we need to ditch sugar or we need to quit smoking. However, your internal and external environment might be saying something different. It might be a thought pattern or a belief or behavior that the body is saying it's time to depart from. So your body always knows exactly where to go next. And we want to use the mind to locate the body and hone in on where to go next. So you might be saying, okay, it's time to quit smoking. However, the body might be saying, cool, we'll do that at a later date. But right now, it's time to address the people-pleasing tendencies, behaviors that we've developed in life. So what's going to happen then in your external environment? You will be placed in situations where you have choices. You can continue to please people or you can deviate from the choice you normally make and stop pleasing people. And then you're going to find out when people please or stop pleasing people that other people aren't going to be very pleased. So that is the direction that you need to go. So what happens when you're not ready to quit something, but all of a sudden there are more consequences in your internal and external environment and the reasons to quit a substance, action, or behavior are louder than ever. Well, twofold on this one. Like I just mentioned, your body and your environment know exactly where to go next. It gets cloudy when the thinking mind jumps in and tries to deviate that or, or leapfrog or put other things ahead of the queue. So another thing that's happening here is you've set a clear intention. And once this intention has been heard or clearly set by the conscious and the unconscious mind, then the external environment is going to start to deliver opportunities for you to push past these substances, thought patterns, actions, limiting beliefs, etc. It's beautiful the way this system is set up. When you're in it, beautiful is hardly a word you want to use to describe it, but when we can zoom out and you get away from alcohol or some other substance or behavior and you look back and you think of the things that happened in your life that allowed you to depart from it, most likely you're going to go, whoa, that was so incredible how it was all orchestrated for me so I could depart from the substance. So I hope you guys enjoyed this segment. And thanks for sticking with me, even though it's a rough day, I'm not quite on my A game. It felt better the further I went through this episode, and I'm really glad I got behind the microphone and did the episode. And before we hear from Kelly, let's hear from today's sponsor, Honey. Ever buy something online and then find out you could have gotten it for less? It's worse than showing up at the airport and realizing your flight was yesterday. Yeah, I've done that a couple times. 
Not to mention, once that happens, you feel like you could be overpaying every time you shop. Luckily, I have Honey, the free browser extension that saves you time and money when shopping online. Honey scans the internet for coupon codes and other discounts. Then, like magic, it automatically applies the one with the biggest savings to your cart at checkout. It knows about every coupon code, sale, or discount at over 20,000 sites like Amazon, Macy's, J.Crew, Domino's, Sephora, Target, and more. Just shop like normal and Honey finds you savings. And believe me, it feels amazing. Like the feeling you have when you first open up to somebody about your decision to quit drinking. I saved almost 10% on a winter flannel I got at Macy's.com while using Honey, and it felt great. Honey has found its 10 million users over a billion dollars in savings. Listen, there's really no reason not to use Honey. It's free to use and installs on your computer in just two clicks. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com forward slash elevator. That's joinhoney.com forward slash elevator. And now let's hear from Kelly. Kelly, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you, Paul? Yeah, Kelly, I'm doing great. Thanks for joining us. Let's get right into this. When was your last drink? It was Friday, October 27th, 2017. Nice. So we're coming up on two years. How's it feel? Pretty good. Very good, actually. You know, it's I've been around 21 months sober, and I've had a lot of changes uh, since since the last time I drank. And amazingly, I don't have any um, cravings. Ooh, okay. It was one. It was pretty uh, sudden. The decision. It was like snap. I'll talk about it later. But yeah, this is the longest stretch, of course, since I was you know 14 or so years old. Well, congratulations, Kelly. Nice job. And Thank you. give listeners some background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family, and mm-hmm. what do you like to do for fun? So I am 54 years old. I grew up on a lake in northern New Jersey, so it's kind of rural. People don't think of New Jersey as rural, but it was. And I'm married. I have two adult children, 18 and 21, and I'm a full-time social worker at a hospital. And I speak Spanish. That was my major college. So I do Spanish speaking social work. Wow. And and your age? 54. And what do you like to do for fun? So everything I used to do for fun seemed to revolve alcohol. So I'm still working on it. But I really like, I like biographies and autobiographies. I've always liked that. I used to like to throw these theme parties uh, where I would always have a lot of vintage clothing and artifacts. So if I could get away from the alcohol, I might get back into that, uh, collecting vintage clothing, you know, just for the fun of it and the history of it. And I don't have any outdoor activities, so that's something I want to work on. I've always been an indoor kind of person, but I like reading. Uh, right now, I'd say recover, recovery is the main thing I'm reading about and listening to. There we go. Good stuff. And, and Paul, I used to like concerts, but again, it's, it's these things I used to do that involved alcohol, so I have to kind of recalibrate them. Totally. And listeners... That's a common response when I say, what do you like to do for fun? And if your answer is, well, I'm still trying to figure it out, there's nothing wrong with that response. You know, The good thing is when, you, when we remove alcohol, a lot of bandwidth is opened up, a lot of personal time and energy is opened up, and anything is possible. And that's what Jeff said maybe 20 or 30 episodes ago, a guy named Jeff who's been on the podcast twice. He talks about this, this time in our life without alcohol is almost a science experiment of sorts where we can try anything. And that's so cool. And like you said, you want to... You want to explore outdoor activities? Well, that is a pretty good possibility in a life without alcohol, right? Right. Yeah. The other thing is I, I'd like to get a dog one day because I've always had cats. So 
it seems kind of funny, but like I, I always thought you have to wake up early and have a lot of energy for a dog and they were too much work because, you know, who wants to get up that early? You have a hangover. But now I think about dogs more. <laughs> so it's a thing that's on my mind as a possible, you know? Yeah, I don't know if you knew this, Kelly, but I have a wonderful standard poodle named Ben. If you're thinking about getting a dog, that's a pitch for that breed. Highly okay. recommend it. Yeah, if you've been thinking about it, maybe your body, your gut, your wisdom, some intuition is saying, hey, Kelly, let's get a four-legged furry friend. Yeah, dogs yeah. have such great energy. Yeah. What, what yeah. kind of dog would you get, you think? I don't know. I would just go to the shelter, you know. I'd probably go to the shelter and find out which one has been here the longest. Yeah. But I have cats, too, so they'd have to get along. You know, I hear people talk about a lot of outdoor travel, things like that. I'm just, I feel like I'm not quite there yet. I'm still um, kind of working on my my domestic kind of setup and my day-to-day, you know? Okay, okay. We take this all at our own pace. And it's good for you to recognize that. You're feeling that you don't want to go too fast. You don't want to push the envelope and get your routine set up domestically. I love it. Now, Kelly, give listeners some background about your drinking. Um, How much did you drink? How did you try to regulate? When did you first realize that it was an issue and it probably needed to go? Did you have any rock bottom moments? I'm excited to share your story with the audience. Okay, so just to let you know, when you think about it as a graph, it's not like a straight line going up. It's it's like a bunch of like, uh, you know, peaks over time, over 37 years, maybe. Sure, Um, the peak in 1988 and 2017. Right, right. So I started, I guess, around ninth grade, typical way that most high school kids start with friends, you know, big 40 ounce bottle of beer, that sort of thing. And I wouldn't say there's anything unusual about the experience, but I think by my second year of high school, I was um, drinking more regularly, uh, mixing wine with soda, beers, kind of like everybody else and still functioning very high. Um, I was like a really high achiever. I was in band, I was in marching band. I was in all the honors classes. I don't think I started noticing there was something unusual till my final year of high school. I did start noticing internally. I was telling myself, you know, hmm, you're getting hangovers. You're calling in sick to work. Is this something that happens to 17-year-olds? But at the time, too, I compared everything, and I did this for a long time. I compared the way I functioned as a person who drank to my father, who was never a high-functioning or even a functioning alcoholic, he was always very low-functioning, meaning that he was a daily drinker, sat on a bar stool, never moved off the stool, didn't work, and became homeless. Gotcha. So when I would look at that and then look at what I was doing, I just kind of put them in two separate categories. Many of us do kept, that. Yeah. So um, I won't spend a real lot of time on the college years, but I will tell you that, of course, you know, binge drinking came in at that point, still maintaining really good grades, following the patterns of most of the other people I knew. I also like I gravitated towards women who uh, were like me, who drank a lot. Like I would never have a friend who wasn't also going to want to sit around and drink all weekend. And, you know, (laughs) looking back on that, I'm sure I missed out on a lot of great people, but I always wanted to be around people who, who drank the same way I did or more. And, you know, at that point in time, it was like the early 80s, mid 80s. There was po- a lot of pot. There was a lot of hash. There was from time to time cocaine. And there was a lot of like, I, I got to be honest with you, there was a lot of like sexual kind of acting out among women of my age at that time. Because if, it seemed like everybody just said, we're just going to do what we want to do. The word I think of is bravado. Sure. Even though we're women, but like I haven't 
read much about this, but I've been thinking about this a lot. It was a very lot of risk taking, you know, a lot of very kind of reckless behavior. You know, I had some problems with that. I won't go into all of them, but, you know, I had some problems where I, I thought, you know, this is a little bit too much. But I figured, you know, even though this doesn't feel quite right, I'm going to do a geographical cu- uh, cure to this. So I moved to the Midwest for graduate school. Okay. And when was that? That was in 1987. Gotcha. And listeners, geographical cure, we want to leave our drinking in northern New Jersey, make the move, assume it's going to stay where we left it, but it comes with us almost every time. Now, there's something else about the geographical cure besides leaving the alcohol behind. I think I also wanted to leave my family of origin behind because besides having the, you know, the alcoholic dad, I also was the, you know, kind of the parent in the family where, you know, my my mom needed a lot of care. So I fell into that role and it was a little stressful. And I think also leaving was also kind of putting distance behind that too. Because I was I always felt very responsible and, you know, I was trying to break away, but I really wasn't. So going to Chicago was, I'm just going to go and start, you know, my life. Sure. But, you know, obviously that, that doesn't usually work if you already have developed a problem with alcohol, which I had, I believe, at that point. At and least you're age 21 at that moment? About 20, I think I was 22. Okay, so 22, moved to the Midwest in, a, in yeah. 1987. You have a uh-huh. bottom in 1988. Let's hear it. Okay, so what happened was I was living alone in an apartment in Chicago, South Side, where I had no I had no transportation. So I was dependent on people to go anywhere or else I had to walk, take cabs. I didn't really have any friends yet. I started hanging out in this bar um, where I didn't know anybody, but I would just go to it. And I did meet some heavy drinkers, you know, people who were locals. This one guy was a drug user, heavy drinker, always had money, always had a car. And, um, you know, I kind of fell in with him. I'll make it kind of short, but there, you know, this person and I were kind of friends. We're drinking buddies. There was an assault. I was, you know, very drunk on hours and hours of drinking, was picked up at the airport, and eventually it turned into a bad situation, an assault. And what happened to me was I finally went into therapy, but I didn't like what I heard because the therapist immediately told me that I had a problem with alcohol. Oh, okay. So I was like, wait a minute. I was a victim, but at the same time, you're telling me it was my fault, but maybe you're right. And it was just a real big mess for me. I didn't yeah, know what no to kidding. do, but I, I, did go to, I did go to AA. At age 22, okay. Yes. Now, there were no young people in the group that I went to because I had to walk to the nearest one. And it was kind of like in a nursing home with elderly people, half of them were in wheelchairs and gigantic ashtrays everywhere. And here's this girl from New Jersey, like 22, walking in, very weird. I remember that period of time, I think I must've had like two months, three months sobriety. I remember that period as, I just wanna be safe. I'm here to kind of just not be in the bars. These people are nice, I'll hang around for a while. But I was not really absorbing the program. I I really didn't want to. I think I just wanted to be safe for a while, and that's what I did for the whole summer of 1988. I was alone a lot. I did a lot of reading on being an adult child of an alcoholic. I thought that's where I should focus my energy, but not so much on the possibility that I was too. So you had a rough experience in 1988 in the summer in Chicago. Even the therapist says this: you have a, a drinking problem. It's probably alcohol, and mm-hmm. this could, you have the feeling that it might be your fault, um, and you, you're away from alcohol for a little bit. 
and you direct focus as an ACOA. Um, yep. what, what happens after that? Well, I decided that if I was hanging out with my friends in graduate school, maybe I'd be safer and I'll drink with them, but I'll just kind of take it easy. So I remember distinctly when I went back out, as they say, was that September and because it was in a nice fancy bar, I was with my friend in graduate school and I decided to have a beer and then that was it. At that point in time, I buried the memory of being in that group. I stopped returning phone calls from the people there. I threw out all the literature and I just said, no, that never didn't really happen. From the AA group? Yeah. Okay. Like I honestly, Paul, I, I buried the incident that happened to me. And the experience of going to AA, like almost like it was a dream thing, like uh, that really didn't happen. Sure. I'm going to move on and I'm going to be like high functioning and get my degree and go back to New Jersey. Okay. That's what I did. During the 90s, the 2000s, and most of the 2010s, what I did was drank increasingly more and more to the point where I was definitely drinking six nights out of seven by the time I stopped. But... When I was binge drinking, I was always with people who were binge drinkers. When I was drinking wine, you know, it was always good wine. It was always like, you know, maybe a wine tasting. Maybe it was like with a fancy dinner. I threw these parties where, you know, it would be about the theme. You know, we're going to have a party. It's for the theme is 1968 to 1971, you know, something like that. Everybody would dress up. But really, it was always about the booze. But you can kind of like, I always use this phrase, I dressed it up because I dressed it up. The drinks were fancy. You know, the thing is, the hangover was the same. But, you know, maybe the drinks were, you know, served in a special way or, you know, I kind of used that to rationalize and also to normalize. And I, you know, sought out people like me, just like I did when I was in college. Um, and these are all parent. A lot of these people are parents and we're raising kids. And some of us are too drunk to be driving kids around. And this is kind of the culture I think we're in right now. I've, I participated in it, you know, and... I was able to keep going because I was able to work. I was able to raise my kids, but there was still something not right. You know, I would say I was feeling for, for seven years or so before I, I got sober, I knew I was becoming increasingly, I, I felt a physical pull to alcohol as well as the psychological one. Usually, you know, the psychological you have maybe have for a while, but I was starting to physically crave more and more and more um, alcohol. I didn't want to run out of it. Sure. I, I really noticed that. And in those six and seven years, um, did you have a time where you, you, you stayed away from alcohol? And did you have like really bad withdrawals? You were like, uh oh, this is this is this is a red flag. You know, my red flag was actually that I was trying to moderate so much. Like it was such an effort to moderate and it never worked. Yeah, all the effort. Yep. And also I had, you know, I had a friend call me out once, <laughs> you know, like, my behavior was, was inappropriate at a camping ground or something. I took my shirt off before everybody was asleep. I don't know. I was drunk. I was peeing in the woods, you know, like uh, things like that would happen and somebody might call me out and I would just get defensive. But the truth is it was, it was excessive. You know, I didn't just have one or two drinks. I normally would have, you know, five, six, seven more. I was asked about my drinking by my son when he was 12 because he got education at school, which made him think that I had a drinking problem. And of course, I said, no, of course I don't. Do you think you had a drinking problem when your 12-year-old son asked you that? Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. I knew I did. But, you know, I had a quick answer, which was, no, of course I don't because I abstained during pregnancy. So, therefore, no, I do not have uh, Yeah, the justification. And another question 
Do you think you perhaps put it off for another 29 years after 1988, and it's more specifically the last seven years before you quit drinking? Because in the back of the mind, you had you had an idea, your dad, of, of what an alcoholic actually looked like? Yes, yes. And I, I thought maybe I can just maintain this level for the rest of my life and maybe die with that you know, drink in my hand and say, yeah, I guess I did okay. And I also really didn't want to give it up, to be honest with you, yeah, Paul. I, get I really. It. It's like how what could possibly be on the other side? I, I just couldn't really see it. You know, it's almost like hanging, you know, like you're hanging on for as long as you can. And I hung on till I was, you know, 52. Of course, we hang on. Alcohol was my best friend, and that's that's a big reason why this is so hard to depart from, is because we have to formally say goodbye to our best friend. Yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, and we don't want to look at the signs, the writing on the wall. And it sounds like they're building up. Your son comes to you at, when he's age 12. You have mm-hmm. friends who are calling you out. Um, yeah, walk us up to, uh, to right before you quit drinking. What happened? So there is about six months leading up. There were a lot of uh, stressors going on, various stressors going on, uh, loss of a business, uh, death in the family. And my son got two DUIs for marijuana. And there was all this stress going on. And rather than like kind of just manage the stressful events, I saw that I just kind of wanted to escape them. And I would do things like I decided, well, I'm afraid of driving drunk. So I put Lyft on my phone so that I could just take cabs because I knew that I was getting in the car a lot under the influence. That was kind of a sign. I remember the last six months constantly being afraid of being pulled over. I was always looking in the rearview mirror. I had gum in the car thinking that that would help me if I ever was pulled over, you know. It was just like a lot of risk, a lot of risk taking. And it felt very scary, you know? I felt like a lot of risk taking. I started going to my hometown to drink there. I kind of figured maybe I'll just go back there and be around, you know, kind of more of a rural environment. And um, that was really a bad idea, but I did that. Yeah, we just heard like 10 great, you might have a drinking problem if lines there. (laughs) (laughs) Probably, yeah, probably. And I have other ones. So, you know, I would fall asleep in my clothes a lot. Sometimes I would have bruises. I didn't know where they came from. You know, probably just banging in the furniture late at night. I had like a, like a twitch in my hand. I had twitch in my right eye. Like these things all kind of adding up. But the biggest thing for me during the last couple of months is my knowledge of the increase of the quantity, like buying bigger bottles, like this really large bottle of tequila, and then trying to figure out the cheapest one to get. Like these, these aren't things I was really doing earlier, you know, maybe when I was in my 30s, but now at like 50, I am consuming large quantities of tequila and red wine, usually on the same night. You're aware of this progression. Yeah, Yeah, I was aware of the progression. Gotcha. And I didn't have a plan. I, I guess I was just kind of just going with it, riding with it, but feeling, feeling out of control, feeling reckless. And, you know, there's some other things that happened, but just know that it was a ton of stress and a lot of craziness. And then what happened was, I'll just lead you up to it. You know, my son really realized he needed to get sober because he had lost his license and, you know, he had left college twice and he was dealing with his own addiction, but it wasn't the same drug as me. It was, you know, cannabis and Adderall. And he started going to some meetings, like young men's meetings. You know, there's a lot of meetings now for young people. There wasn't back in the 80s. <laughs> and he was kind of in and out of the rooms, but trying, right? Mm-hmm. And I think it got to a point where he had had, you know, a really bad panic attack. And he was just not doing well, but he, he was struggling. 
And it was a Friday night and he was home. He had come home that night, but he was not well, you know, psychologically. And I was really, I was really drunk. And I had to go to the high school to pick up my daughter and I had been drinking. And I was driving him, talking to him, making no sense. Picked her up, actually from a Halloween party, I picked her up, drove home, still drunk. And then I spun in the driveway like donuts, like I would, like a teenager would do. Why am I, I'm blasting music, I'm spinning the car around. What am I doing? And meanwhile, my son is in a lot of pain, trying to talk to me, really. And I'm totally not present. And then I I feel like it was a couple hours later, maybe around midnight. I'm still drinking, but I'm starting to, you know, slow down to go to sleep, I guess. It had been hours of drinking. And I remember he said, you know, I don't feel it's safe for me to live here anymore. Whoa. How'd that feel? Shocking. I mean, that was it. I mean, because basically he was saying... If there's nothing done about the alcohol in this place, I might have to go to a halfway house with other guys. I can't, I'm not safe here, Mom. That was it. And when does he call you out? That night, I believe. Was that October 27th? Yeah, I think it was around midnight. I was loaded, but I heard him. Yeah, and that's the night of your last drink. That was it. I remember the water I had to consume for over the next 48 hours because I was so dehydrated. I was so hungover. But I woke up with the knowledge that I had to stop drinking that morning, that Saturday morning. Do you think you woke up with the knowledge that you had to stop drinking or you woke up with something different as in like the conscious and the unconscious mind were operating in tandem that there was the cognitive dissonance was no longer there. So, yeah, it's knowledge, but it's yeah. also there, there's more uh, you're, you're operating in concert, both systems, the conscious and the unconscious mind was it something like that. Yeah, I think I think so because it was kind of like an internal shift, and I almost feel like I use the phrase "light switch" a lot because it felt like a switch, like something switched, and suddenly I just kind of s- just stood up straight and I said, "I get, I get what I, I get what's happening here. I'm concerned about his addiction, but I've, I've the same one. I've had mine longer. Wow. It's just a drug that is sanctioned by society and everybody we know, and it's, it's, it's destroying my relationships. It's hurting my health." I'm not safe to drive. My parenting is compromised. You know, if, if your son's telling you he's not safe, for me, that 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 was enough for me. You can also connect and, the dots that he's not safe. He's also saying, Mom, you're not safe. Right. Yes. Right. Right. And, you know, what's amazing, too, is that hearing that from him when also he was not he was not doing well himself, but he 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 had the presence of mind to to say that to me. Which is good because, you know, I think he was getting enough from being in and out of the rooms uh, of AA that he was starting to see my behavior really wasn't supportive of his sobriety. So, like, if somebody were to say to me, so did you become sober for your son? The answer is no. I actually became sober for me, but he he was the catalyst in a way. Sure. So on October 28th, first 48 hours, you drank a ton of water. What else did you do? What was that like? How'd you do it? Uh, Oh, my God. You know. The weirdest thing happened, you know, years before that, maybe in the early 2000s or even the 90s, I used to go looking for books on women and alcohol and I could never find anything. I remember going to the bookstore and looking. It wasn't there. I don't know where it was. I just couldn't find it. And now that we have the internet and I have a phone where I can Google things, that Saturday I drove to a parking lot, still really hungover, and I just typed in women and alcohol and I found hip sobriety that day, that Saturday and started reading all of Holly Whitaker's stuff. Yeah, great stuff. And I couldn't believe what I found. Like, it it changed everything. 
because I kind of knew I was going to have to do something. But then I, I had this, all this, all these people out there talking about this, younger women than me, getting it, and also kind of saying, hey, we don't know if AA is for everybody. It was very comforting to find that. So I have to tell you about that because that has helped. That helped the early months a lot because I was listening to the podcast by uh, Holly and Laura McCowan. Yeah, great resource. Oh. I know they got great Instagram channels as well. And you mentioned AA is not for everyone. I know that's refreshing for some listeners to hear. But for you, the reason why I wanted to get you on the podcast, you sent me an email and said you you kind of got both foots in two different pools, right? You you, you do AA. And then Annie Grace, her program has resonated mm -hmm. with you as well. And right. traditionally, and it does not have to be this way, and especially, you know, some of the people in AA, they're, 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 sometimes they're so dogmatic. It's like AA or bust, that they're not open to these other ideas and strategies. In fact, I've had people cancel Cafe RE because they've said, oh, their sponsor won't sponsor me because I'm part of an online community called Cafe RE, which is fine, right? But I'm still like, uh, yeah, that's, that's yeah. It's tough not to respond of how I actually feel on that one. Best of luck, of course, understand. But yeah, it sounds like you ha are, are embracing both sides, which is great. Tell us more about that. Yeah, well, this is kind of the most exciting thing. First, I want to just mention to you, Paul, that my son's sobriety date is the January that came after mine. So he and I both got sober within a three-month period. So I just want to mention that because it's really cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And, you know, the ultimate accountability I, I partner, always, your son. Yeah, and I always say to him, I could have never done it at that age because, honestly, I really couldn't. I wasn't ready, and it didn't happen for me. But um, anyway, I did go to the, I did go back to AA a week after I stopped drinking. I walked into a room, and I just said, hey, I'm, I, I need to, I told, I told as much as my story as I could. I was kind of blubbering, and I don't even remember what I said. But the people there all understood, of course, and I've been a member of that group since. People my age, some a little bit older, you know, a lot, nice mix of people. It's a lot different than that time I went in 88. Or maybe I'm just ready for it, you know? Could be um, a combination of both. Probably. And also I have a step meeting I go to. I mix it up. I go about three or four times a week. The thing about how do I combine the two. So I didn't find this Naked Mind, her book, and her online community until I was 18 months sober. Wow. So I was just doing AA and, you know, reading reading online stuff, reading Holly Whitaker stuff, reading a ton of biographies about women and alcohol that are out there now that I couldn't find years ago. I have a pile of them right here, about six books I read one after another because I needed the the autobiographies. I needed the stories. I needed the stories to resonate. It's helped me a lot. But, you know, the meetings have been helpful, but I had trouble with some of the steps. I had trouble with the phrase character defects, and I, I'm really not very fond of the phrase alcoholic or alcoholism. Because I just feel like it's so stigmatizing and I kind of don't like, like, we're so separate from everybody else. I feel like, you know, there's a lot of drinkers out there that aren't that different than me, but somehow I'm in this different category. I see people drink alcoholically all the time, but they're not identified as such, but I am because I go to a group that says we are. You see what I mean? I do think I have a genetic predisposition. I think that's part of it, but I don't feel like my character is driving my addiction. I don't feel like my character is what needs the repair. However, I do want to work on it. In other words, I, I don't fully accept it, but I accept it to the point that I do want, I do believe in self-improvement. So I do want to find my way to use new language in these steps to make it work for me. And that's what I've told my sponsor. Listeners, it, there's a lot to unpack there. And first off, I want to comment on women in sobriety. 
And so you guys, you women, are kicking so much ass. A big point of me doing this project is to shred the shame, right? And women are coming forward and talking about how alcohol is pure, undeniable shit in groves and hordes right now. And when I started the podcast in 2015, there was like seven or eight recovery podcasts. There just wasn't much out there. And I think one or two were female hosted. Now there's got to be like 70 or 80 podcasts that are all about sobriety, recovery, moving forward in life without alcohol. And the majority of them are hosted by females on Amazon. So I'm, I'm writing a book. It's out now when this podcast comes out. It seems like every time I do more research about keywords and the placement in the industry, there's another alcoholism book or in, in this genre authored by a female. So girls, women, you guys are kicking so much ass. For all the male listeners that are listening right now, we just want to say thank you and great job. Keep up the work. And, and some of those qualms you have about AA, I have the same ones, and a lot of people do. Look, the program was started in 1935. And if Bill and Dr. Bob were to, to write the book again, I, I'm guessing some of the stances would soften. We might hear a different word than alcoholic. Um, right. Character defects, yeah, people don't want to focus on what they suck at. They want to focus on what they're good at. Of course, I know my character defects. That's what led me to drink. Some of those are blind spots, and it's great to do navel gazing. But I, I, I like what you said there. It's the, we don't have to buy into f everything with the program. So where are you at with the steps now and with the sponsor? Well, we're okay. I mean, I'm, I'm, this is what I did. I got this book called A Woman's Way Through the 12 Steps. And it's a short book, but it kind of breaks each one down with some different language and how women have interpreted some of the steps. So, for example, instead of a character defect, I like this one phrase, uh, patterns and defenses. Because it's like, yeah, I have patterns. And I could see where they were throughout my life and in some of my relationships, especially destructive behaviors. Defenses. Well, what are those? Well, those probably started in childhood and I was, you know, kind of, you know, using alcohol as a soothing sort of thing for my fears, my anxieties, my insecurities. So patterns and defenses helps me a lot more than defects. Do you see? I mean, really, it's just semantics. But for me, I feel more comfortable with it. And I, that's how I like to talk about the things I want to work on. Exactly. It's semantics, but it's also understanding that they weren't so much defects. They were patterns and behaviors, like you mentioned. They were coping strategies that at a time in our life were extremely effective. It got us through childhood. It got us through difficult living situations, and they served at a time. But now, maybe in our 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, it's time to explore those unhealthy patterns, those un unhealthy coping mechanisms, and let them go. That's really it. It's not like a full-on right. war on our character defects because then we're fighting darkness with darkness. It's full acceptance of, of the behaviors that brought us to where we're at and simply softening the tone around it and letting them go. Yeah, and kind of like embracing the humanness. I like that too. Yeah, because bingo. this is all human you know, stuff. I'm around point of, uh, I guess it's like step six, so I'm kind of right there. So I guess I'm right in the middle, really, and I'm going to keep doing the best I can with it. I don't... I don't feel pressured. I'm going to try. If, if you'd asked me a few months ago, are you going to keep doing the steps? I might have said, no, nah, I don't know. But right now, I, I'm going to try. I'm going to keep doing it. You lobbed this one over the plate. You're right on step six or the part where you're going to ask the big man upstairs to remove your character defects. <laughs> What's your plan there? Well, <laughs> the only problem with that is I don't have a big man upstairs. I have like three different def definitions of a higher power, and they're all really weird. But um, I pull on them whenever I need them. <laughs> really nuts. But I was able to craft one. I got one from a friend of mine in the program, actually. And he, he told me the way he uses um, his higher power is everything outside of himself that he can't control. I'm like, I like that one. Th that works for me. I like that. And I have two others. So, yeah, there's no man upstairs for me. But I'm going to 
do my best with this. And then, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable however it goes. Uh, my sponsor is understanding of, of where I'm at with it, and we're doing our best. Um, I do a lot of writing. I have pads of paper everywhere, in my car, like in every room, it's on my phone. And then at the same time I'm doing this, I'm also on the uh, This Naked Mind online community where I feel like I'm helping a lot of people there who are really early in sobriety and still dealing with cravings and moderation and all of that. So I'm very excited because it's I'm in two different places working different angles of, of um, how people get sober and stay sober. I love it. And listeners, sometimes you hear stories about just AA or 12 steps. Sometimes we'll do an interview and you won't even hear the word AA. And this one, it's an amalgamate of the two. So quick takeaway, quick value bomb that you helped me drop here is there is no right or wrong way to do this. And if anybody does tell you there is a right or wrong way, take that with a grain of salt. There's some strong ego with that person. And so right. you mentioned earlier, you don't have cravings anymore. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. In the last almost two years, did you experience an obstacle or a craving where you almost went back? No, I didn't. The only thing that happened was for a brief amount of time, I wanted to smoke cigarettes a little bit, so I bought a pack. I don't consider that a terrible thing considering how much alcohol I was consuming. I think I smoked two of them and I threw the rest out. You know, like it was one of those, like, you know, you're driven to do something. It could be anything really, and it wasn't healthy, but I have not craved alcohol at all. It was more like that, um, I don't know how to describe it, you know, that stress you feel, you have to do something, you have to fill yourself with something. So I bought a pack of cigarettes. The other thing I would say is I don't like, for a while I couldn't look at drinks. I didn't like looking at the stemware. I didn't want to pass bars and restaurants. I didn't like the fanciness and the, you know, seeing margaritas and things that I used to drink. And now I, since I read Annie Grace's book, I just see them as straight ethanol. I do not think about the drinks as tasting good. Her book has helped me take the romanticism of drinking out of the equation. If there was any of it left, it's it's gone now, which I really love because <laughs> it's it's really supplemented AA because sometimes in AA people do talk about wanting to drink and I wish I could be a normal drinker and you hear that you get it in some of the literature there's a reading about there's that whole reading about you know if we could drink like normal men <sighs> I don't feel that way. I feel like it's bad. It's crap or as your book is about to uh, tell us alcohol is <laughs> shit. So I'm using the Annie Grace stuff to kind of be more the science that I need and the reality of what this is that I've been putting into my body and lots of moms and dads out there driving kids to the high school are putting in their bodies like I was. And no, I'm, I just, I'm just not craving it. I don't see myself ever craving it again. I, I want to keep everything green, as they say in AA, remember what it was like because I don't want to forget, but I don't see myself going back. Have you experienced a craving to feel a different way? Does that make sense? So after... You mean like like a high or like a like any type of high? Sure. So initially, like after a couple of weeks, we're no longer craving the drug alcohol. And what I missed the mark my first couple of years that I thought I was craving alcohol or craving sugar, et cetera, but I was, I was actually craving to feel a different way than I was currently feeling. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Have you yeah, experienced any of that? Kind of. I mean, I would kind of equate that with a feeling of having to fill yourself with like you have some sort of your lack. You have some sort of lack and you have to fill it up. And maybe it's not so much a craving, but like a drive, like like a drive to do something with yourself. I feel like my, my emotions have kind of evened out so much that that's happening less. 
I'm thinking maybe that's what the grabbing the cigarettes was. It's so strange. I'm just not feeling that need anymore. I have like a, a steadiness that I just didn't have. You know, I used to be very irritable, emotional, argumentative. Well, I still a little argumentative, but, but, um, just more extreme, you know? Sure. And it's, it's just, I just gotten more mellow. Call it strange or call it awesome. I mean, <laughs> Kelly, you've made a huge change in your life after, you know, Starsky and Hutch in your driving way. Um, doing, yeah, spinning out. I mean, it, it's huge. It's awesome. It's not strange. You've put in a ton of work. Nice job. In fact, you, you've you fully embraced uh, different avenues in, in recovery. Nice job. And I got one more question before we reached the rapid fire round. How has the relationship changed with your son? It's so much better. To tell you the truth, those last two years where he was using and I was drinking were just hor- just horrible. They were so painful because I felt like I had lost my son. I really had lost him. He wasn't he wasn't the kid that I knew. He was, uh, you know, difficult, belligerent, sneaking out of the house, taking ladders, and sneaking into his friend's house, like getting DUIs. Not at night. I barely couldn't, you know, had trouble graduating from high school. All these things that just weren't him or the, the kid I knew. And so there was a lot of fighting. I didn't know how to handle it. So there was a lot of conflict. But meanwhile, I felt like such a hypocrite because you know, here I am drinking as much as I want. This is me. I'm holding a wine glass, and with the other hand, I'm telling him what to do. With the other hand, you know, pointing. Bad look, Paul. Bad look. And he's called me a hypocrite, and I can hear it now. He still kind of jokingly will still say, Mom, you're such a hypocrite. And I'm like, yeah, I was. <laughs> and um, I'll own it because it's true. I have some amends to make to him still. He's a few to make to me. But we know that's where this relationship is going. And it's just so much better. I he also had to make some amends to my daughter. He did that like a week ago. He gave her money back that he had stolen from her room wow. when he was using. So like re- relationships are getting repaired. Gotcha. Actually, one more question for you at the rapid sure. fire round. You've heard of the quote, drinking is but a symptom. What do you think you drank for? You know, I've been thinking about this. And the only thing that really comes to mind is it must really have begun with living in that alcoholic home and having a lot of fear because like where you can't be soothed because you know when my dad drank he, he was scary it wasn't the dad that went to work and then would drink he was a dad that was mean and kind of scary all day where you didn't want to come home from school and see what what you were going to get you know he's abusive and I, I just assume that I wasn't aware of how much fear and anxiety I had underneath because as soon as I could start drinking around 14 I did and I I also think that, so I think anxiety, fear need to be soothed. I also think that I am genetically predisposed. I think it's a combination of the two that brought me to to where I am. And I think I'm going to uncover more of it because, you know, when you're sober for a while, you start to just keep peeling more things away. I have a lot to, you know, still do with that. There is no top of the mountain, which is a good thing. And we have reached the rapid fire round. Are you ready? I think so. Go ahead. All right. What's a light bulb moment you've had on this journey? I guess that I am as strong as I am. Like, I'm impressed that I was able to do this. Like, what it took to fight through that first weekend and then stay sober. So I guess just that I was I was, I was stronger than I thought. And what's your favorite alcohol-free drink? I like this kombucha stuff. Uh, but the 0% alcohol one. My sponsor told me about it, and I like uh, coffee. In fact, my biggest problem with my physical health 
probably is that I got to moderate the coffee so I, I don't get caffeine intoxication, <laughs> like headaches from too much caffeine or withdrawal. So like I'm still moderating my coffee. And what are some of your favorite resources? Well, I like Russell Brand's Recovery on CD. I listen to him in the car. I love listening to him go through the steps. It's just like I laugh. It's on CD, everybody. <laughs> I'm kidding. I know. That was funny. I didn't read his book. I just went right to the CD. I like this Naked Mind online community. I, I, I didn't mix it all up. I guess I'm kind of old. You know? So I got books. I got CDs. This Your podcast now I'm listening to all the time. Driving okay. to work, driving home from work. Very I'm telling good. other people about it in my program. You know, the people I talk to in the parking lot, I'm like, ah, oh, you got to check out Recovery Elevator. You got to read Annie Grace, you know. And um, I, I still get all of Holly's, Holly Whitaker's stuff, her, her new newsletter website. And um, the AA meetings, I do like three or four a week. That is and the, you know what? Yeah. Big book. I got the big book and this naked mind together on, on the nightstand. That is a great list of resources. Seriously, I ask that to everybody, and I, I love your list. Uh, what's on your bucket list in an alcohol-free life? Well, maybe eventually liking the outdoors. I'm not sure what, what my resistance has been all these years. I grew up on a lake, so I don't know what my problem is. So maybe just you know getting outside more. I do need to enhance the physical part of my life because I feel like I'm getting the spiritual, the psychological, the emotional, the social, the community, but I don't have enough physically, like yoga, meditation. I know that's where I need to go. Uh, that's the one area that I have to improve on. And I, I will. I'll get to that too. Uh, more physical activity. Travel at some point. I, it's not something I'm thinking about now, but maybe in the future. And what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners? You know, I would just say listen to any voice inside that is telling you something is wrong because the voice is just going to get louder. <laughs> you know, I was hearing it and, you know, on and off, really, I was hearing it since the 80s, and it just took me a really long time to get here. It got louder and louder, like, in that last couple of years. And before we depart, Kelly, give listeners your own customized you-might-have-a-drinking-problem-if line. <laughs> I have a few, but I'm going to go with this one. You know, when I was 23, I got gout. And at the time, I went to the emergency room on the south side of Chicago. I hopped there, you know, on one foot. The doctors, they couldn't understand why this young, thin, small woman had gout. Because, you know, I wasn't a 55-year-old man. You know, Benjamin Franklin had gout. I was eating, like, cheese fries. I wasn't eating any meat or anything, but I was drinking a lot of old-style beer. I know now that my gout was related to alcohol. So if you're a 23-year-old woman and you're diagnosed with gout in the ER, you might have a drinking problem. I've spoken with several people who had gout just disappear after quitting drinking. Yeah, love it. Great job, Kelly. Thank you so much for joining us. You're kicking major ass. Thanks, Paul. I got an email a couple days ago in the subject line. It said addicted to hope. Um, and, I, and I went to the website and it was a recovery coaching business, which looked great, right? And it, it's, a, it's a cool name, addicted to hope. But when I first saw it, I saw it for what it was, an addiction to hope. And we need to be careful with hope. And I cover this with Aisha. I think five or six episodes ago. So we can actually be addicted to hope, which is in the future. We can be addicted to a future moment that is different than the moment that we're currently living in. So this is dangerous. And I don't want to say hope is dangerous. Hope is positivity. That's great. I'm not saying we depart from hope, but we want to be aware of what we're hoping for and where that location exists. 
Most likely, hope is a future moment in time that isn't now, which is reinforcing that something is wrong with the current moment we're in. Replay this over and over and over, and we actually have an addiction to be living in a future moment that isn't now. So be careful with this. Be careful with hope. And I know that sounds strange to hear on a recovery podcast. Now, I first came across this concept when I was reading When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. I actually went back on the audiobook. I was like, what? Hope? Not a good thing? Are you kidding me? And, and sure, hope is a fantastic thing. We do need to believe that tomorrow is going to be better than today. But however, if we keep doing that over and over and over, we're never in today. We're never in the now. So be aware of this. If you're constantly hoping for something to be different, and that's what I used alcohol to do, hoping my internal state would feel different, cue alcohol, that worked well. I'm always hoping for something to be different and we can become addicted to this feeling. Okay, I hope that resonated with you guys. Recovery elevator, Kirby, this one's for you. We took the elevator down, we gotta take the stairs back up. I love you guys, you can do this. 